So now that you've heard the Four Noble Truths, remember the steps for awakening to the truth that were mentioned in Majjhima 95. First, you find a reliable teacher, listen to the Dharma, take it to heart. Then you do five steps. Pondering, you compare the, what you've learned of the Dharma with views that you already have. And you ask yourself, do I have any views that get in the way of practicing the Dharma? Or, or in accepting the truth of the Dharma. Uh, I know of a case of a famous Buddhist scholar who told me one time that he understands what happened under the Bodhi tree, that the Buddha learned equanimity. So he ran up the stairs. Uh, but he didn't understand what happened under the twin cell trees where the Buddha passed away. He doesn't see how anybody, as he said, he didn't see how a human being, which is a con conditioned being, could attain the unconditioned. So that gets in the way of the idea that it would be possible for you to attain an unconditioned happiness based on your definition of what a human being is. But the question is, why hold to that definition if it gets in the way of the possibility of an unconditioned happiness? As I told him, okay, you're starting with this definition, and then from the definition, you're making certain conclusions about what a human being can and cannot know. The Buddha took it the other way around. The question is, what can a human being know? And then once you've learned the, the, the full range of what a human being can know, which includes that there is an unconditioned happiness that can be found through your efforts, what does that say about what a human being is? In the Buddhist case, it's saying, okay, don't try to identify yourself or don't try to define yourself. The more you define yourself, the more you limit yourself. Leave that question open. What am I? Who am I? Leave that question open. Focus on what can be known. I also told him that he was like a person who could read three letters at a time. He sees the word antelope. And all he sees is the word ant. So he thinks the Buddha's talking about ants. And then when someone explains to him, no, the Buddha's talking about antelopes. And he said, well, ants don't elope. This doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't appreciate the humor. <laughs> so you might well look at, and that's the same way, look at any views that you might have to say that's impossible for a human being to know these things. Ask yourself, why do you hold to that, to be, hold to that view? On the basis of what? Usually it's on the basis of what you've heard. Remember those, if you remember the reading where the, the Buddha talks about five ways of deciding what's true, which could actually turn out to be either true or false because of conviction, because of pondering things that make sense to you, those kinds of things. Okay, those are not really grounds for really knowing anything. So you ask yourself, well, why let something that I'm not really fully 100% in possession of knowledge of get in the way of the possibility of true happiness? So this is one of the ways you might want to ponder the attitudes you might have to get in the way that say, I can't do this. And ask yourself, why do I hold up those views? Can I put them aside for the time being? That's one way of pondering. The other is if you start thinking about the different Dharma teachings and you say, well, this teaching doesn't fit in with that teaching. It doesn't make sense. You have to ask yourself, am I using the right context? Remember, we talked about how the Four Noble Truths form the context for the other Dharma teachings. One typical example you hear of is, you know, if there is no self, then who does the karma who receives the results of the karma? And that's putting the teachings on the three characteristics ahead of the question of what's skillful and what's not skillful. If you switch it around, so let's start with karma, which is one of the underlying presuppositions of the Four Noble Truths, which is that your actions will determine by whether there's going to be happiness or suffering. Then the question is, well, what kind of action is the action of taking on an identity of a self? When is the perception of self 
skillful, one is a presumption of not self, skillful action. In that case, it makes sense. And you begin to realize, okay, there are some times when actually perceiving myself as a meditator, perceiving myself as this or that, or identifying with certain activities as ones I would hold on to, that can be, that can actually be skillful. There are also times when not self is unskillful. Who ran into the tree? I don't exist. <laughs> That's unskillful. Okay. So use the Four Noble Truths as the context for pondering about the drama, both in terms of what other outside views you might have that are getting in the way, and also just trying to make sense out of the drama itself. Always put the Four Noble Truths first. Then based on the pondering, the Buddha says four things happen. You develop a desire to practice, a willingness to submit to what the Buddha said is uh, skillful and unskillful. In other words, you take on his directives, you take on his advice. Then you pass judgment. The word in Pali, Dulia, also means to weigh things. In other words, you, on the one hand, you judge your actions as opposed to the standards that are established by the Buddha. Where do you not come up to standard? What can you do to bring your actions up to standard? And then as you bring, try to, try to do that, and that's the next step, which is exertion. Try to bring your actions in line with the Dharma. Then you, then you go around and pass judgment on them again. Is this really working? Is it not? If it's not working, is it because I, I misunderstand something? Or is it something in the Dharma that doesn't make sense? In which case you talk it over with someone. There's a place where the Buddha actually says it's these two activities of exertion and judgment, or he calls it reflection and commitment that nourish the Dharma. You commit yourself to the practice and then you reflect on how you do it. And if it's not working, okay, what can I do to do it better? Um, this will receive, you use the, the judgments to fine tune your practice. And this is what the Buddha would call appropriate attention. You're trying to bring the Four Noble Truths to bear as a guide to what you should do. The duties of the Four Noble Truths apply to what you're doing. This starts out with his instructions to Rahula when Rahula was seven. Before you do something, you ask yourself, is this going to be skillful? Is it not? You know, is it going to harm anybody? If it's going to harm anybody, you don't do it. If you don't foresee any harm, you go ahead and do it. While you're doing it, you check it to see what I'm doing now. Is it actually harmless or is it or am I causing some unexpected harm? If there is unexpected harm, you stop. If there's no, no harm that you can see, you can continue. When you're done, you look at the long-term results. And if it turned out you did cause harm, then the voice recommends if it was a physical action or a verbal action, go and talk it over with someone who's more advanced on the path to get their advice on one, to be able to admit your mistakes to other people, and two, to get their advice. Because if you can't admit your mistakes to other people after a while, you get so you can't admit them to yourself. You want to be open about that. And then finally, if it was a mental action, then you just tell yourself, oh, okay, that's, I don't want to go there. The Buddha says you develop a sense of shame around that action. And here we're talking about healthy sense of shame, which is the opposite of shamelessness, as opposed to shame, which is the opposite of pride. Remember, the Buddha was a noble warrior. Noble warriors have a very strong sense of shame, but they also had a strong sense of pride. That certain actions were beneath them. That's a healthy sense of shame. And so again, you commit yourself to actually doing the path, and then you reflect mm -hmm. on the results. And in this way, your right views actually get more and more refined as your actions get more refined as well. And so what are you going to learn from this kind of practice of generating desire, the willingness, 
the judgment and the exertion. There are two things that I want to point out. One is you begin to see that there, there is a role for clinging in the path. We talked about this a little bit this morning, but I'd like to go in more detail now. We talked about how you know, there are four kinds of clinging. There's clinging to sensuality, to views, to habits and practices, and to your sense of self. And in terms of those four types, the Buddha doesn't have any role for sensuality clinging in the path. Now, this doesn't mean he's, he's going to demand that you eat cool and live in prisons, but you basically just don't engage in sensual fantasies. Uh, realize when you start engaging in that, that's not part of the path. But there are certain views that you want to develop, certain habits and practices you want to develop, and a sense of self you want to develop. The views that he recommends have to do with questions having to do with the power of human action in the world, the fact of rebirth, and the power of mind in determining both your actions and your rebirth. Those, those are actually metaphysical questions. Sometimes you hear it said that the Buddha did not address metaphysical issues. Well, there's some metaphysical issues that he didn't address because they're irrelevant to the problem of suffering. Is, is, is the world finite or infinite? Is it eternal, non-eternal? The Buddha just said, look, it's been around for a long time and it's big. <laughs> That's all you need to know. <laughs> but what you really need to know is, okay, to what extent does your, do your mental actions have a role in shaping your experience of the world. And the Buddha is saying, okay, that's, that's an issue he has to address. How is it that human beings can have actions? What is the nature of causality? And we could go in for another whole weekend on the issues of causality, but it basically comes down to is part of your present experience is shaped by your past actions, but an important part is shaped by your present actions. If we're totally shaped by your past actions, you wouldn't have any choices. As the Buddha said, you would kill and steal and be all because of your past actions. But you can actually say no to those impulses. You can say yes to more skillful impulses. And so past actions basically give you the raw material from which you shape your current experience. But what you're doing right now is going to have an important impact on whether you're going to be suffering now or not. It's like being a cook. Your past actions are basically the food that's in the refrigerator, the food that's in the pantry. And your present actions are your skill as a cook. You know, sometimes you have good food in the pantry, but if you're not a skillful cook, you can make a disaster. <laughs> if you're a skillful cook, you can make good food out of anything. So that's, that's the basic principle of the way the Buddha teaches karma. So those are the views that he would recommend that you hold about the, about the world. As for habits and practices, well, let me say, let me back up a minute. Okay, the views he recommends is say you ignore a lot of the issues that have to do with the world. Focus on just these issues of karma, rebirth, and the power of the mind. That is kind of a sketch. It's not a full worldview. You know, we talk about the Buddhist cosmos. They've actually written books on the Buddhist cosmos about all the different levels and who's where and what's, what's going on. The Buddha himself never gave a full map. You know, he'll give a little sketch here and a little sketch there. And sometimes we'll talk about the, the Brahma world. Sometimes we'll talk about some Deva worlds. But there's never an indication that he's talking about everything. He's covered every base. And the same when you get to issues of your sense of self. There are a lot of issues about what is yourself? Is it something physical? Is it something mental? Is it eternal? Is it non-eternal? Those kinds of things. And the Buddha says, just put that aside. All you need is a sense of self that you are capable of doing the practice. You're responsible and that you will benefit from it. In other words, those three senses of self, we talked about the agent and the consumer and the observer. You are able to 
do the practice, you will benefit from it. And as, as the observer who passes judgment and makes recommendations on how you're doing, that has a role too. That, that sense of self you want to develop. All the other issues around other issues around self, the Buddha said, just put it aside. So again, it's just a sketch. Where the Buddha goes into a lot of detail is habits and practices. The word habit, sila, can also mean virtue, precept. As I said last night, the reason I translate that as habit is because if you translate it as precepts and practices, it sounds like, well, I have no precepts. I'm not attached to that one. I can check that one off. Well, no. <laughs> Everybody has their habits. And a lot of them can be very unskillful in that we hold habits that we cling to. We have to learn to look at our habits to say, okay, to what extent are these habits actually skillful or are they not? And in this case, the Buddha would recommend the habits of right view, excuse me, right action, right speech, right livelihood, the practices of right mindfulness, right concentration. The Buddha gives a lot of detail on that. And this, this seems to be the most important of all the different ways of clinging. You hold on to right ways of doing things. You look at things in terms of action and result. And that, that causes you to turn around and look at your sense of self as a kind of action. You realize what they call eye-making and mind-making. That you create your sense of you, you create your sense of what belongs to you, and you have your choice. This, if, you know, this is something I want to identify with. This, this, tea, this cup of tea or that cup of tea? Um, you, th you think about the advantages and disadvantages of that. You see that sense of self is an action that you actually created. And how do you create your sense of self out? Well, it's basically out of your skills. I'm capable of doing this. I'm not capable of doing that. So let's work on the skills. So it keeps going back to habits and practices. The same about the world. You look at your views about the world as actions. This is why you hold to that particular view. These are the results that come from holding that kind of view. To what extent is, are they helpful? And at what point in the practice do you let it go? So you're basically using habits and practices as kind of the linchpin for everything else. And then when those habits and practices have gotten to where you want to go, then you can let go of the whole, the whole shebang. So that's the rule of clinging in following the path. The next question about the path is, how does the path target those three types of clinging that we talked about, three types of cravings me, that we talked about? And you remember the path is divided into three groups. There's what's called the discernment group, the virtue group, and the concentration group. The discernment group is the one that teaches you to focus on the events that would lead to becoming. And we talked about how the problem of becoming, or craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming, is both of those can lead to further becoming. And the way to get around that problem is to focus on, well, what are the, what's the string of events that leads up to creating a sense of becoming? You know, there are things like feelings, there are things like fabrications, there are things like intentions, acts of attention. And if you learn to look at these things as individual events, part of a causal chain, but as events, in and of themselves before you think about who's doing them or where they're being done. You can pry, pry loose your attachment to those, to those processes. You realize, okay, I'm creating my sense of me out of these little actions. How can they, how can they support a true happiness for my sense of me? Or how can they support my sense of the world, a reliable sense of the world? You develop this passion for them. So it's the discernment group that focuses on, on craving for becoming and, and by extension by craving for non-becoming. Um, the concentration group 
is what gives you an alternative, a new alternative to pain, to gladden the mind. Because um, you remember that the Buddha said that if, no matter how much you may see the drawbacks of sensuality, if you don't have an alternative non-sensual pleasure to fall back on, you are going to go back to your old sensual pleasures. And so you're going to need the practice of right mind, of right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration to provide you with that alternative sense of pleasure, which is why the sense of pleasure that comes from concentration is not a danger. It's an important part of the path. It's a necessary part of the path. So you need to gladden the mind to keep your keep up your spirits as you practice the path. Um, also, you notice that the, the path itself is made out of aggregates. We talked about the five aggregates before, form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness. The path itself is made out of these in terms of your discernment is basically perceptions and thought fabrications. The practice of concentration involves all five aggregates. You've got the form of the body, in which this case would be the breath and the breath energies. You have the feelings of pleasure that you're trying to create out by the way you focus on those. There is the perception of the breath, the different ways of perceiving the breath energy in the body, some of which are helpful, some of which are not. There's fabrication and the direct of thought and evaluation as you try to adjust everything. And then in the intentions by which you keep it going as you go beyond the first jhana. And then finally, there's the consciousness, which is aware of all these things. So what you're doing with in the practice of concentration is you're taking those aggregates, which if you cling to them in the wrong way, are suffering. You're learning to cling to them in a more skillful way, for the time being at least, so that you have an alternative place to stay. And also in doing that, you become more and more sensitive to the stress that the mind is creating for itself as it goes after greed, aversion, and delusion, and begin to say, is it really worth it? I don't think so. And part of the mind saying, I'd like to have both, both the concentration and the <laughs> And this, this is where I have to bring in some more discernment to realize that there are some cases where it really is either or. Other cases where, okay, it's, it's not the case that you have to deny yourself of all pleasures, but you have to be very careful about noticing what is the effect of this particular pleasure on my practice. So in the fact that concentration is made out of the aggregates, it serves two functions. One is it gets you familiar with the aggregates because you're doing, you're acting, you're, you're, you're playing with them, basically. It's like learning about eggs. You could sit and watch an egg. <laughs> you learn something about the egg. <laughs> but the real, way, the real way to learn about eggs is you get out the frying pan, you get out the steamer, you get all, all these other utensils and do different things with the eggs. And you learn about them by doing something with them. In the same way, you really get to know these aggregates by making a state of concentration out of them. As you begin to realize, okay, if I change my perception of breath, it'll have this effect. If I talk to myself about the breath in this and this way, it'll have that effect. And so you're actually playing with these things and you're getting a really good sense of, okay, what's the perception? What's the fabrication? What's the feeling that results? And at the same time, you create the state of st steadiness that allows you to see subtle things going on in your mind that you would have missed otherwise. So those are the ways in which the path targets the different kinds of clinging. And here again, you would bring out that five-step program once you begin to see, okay, even the concentration itself is stressful. Then you bring out those five 
steps. The Buddha, there's one passage, it's really interesting. There are two sutras where the Buddha talks about how a stream enterer, one who gets the first taste of awakening, and an arahant. See the origination, the passing away, the allure, the, uh, the drawbacks, and the escape from the five faculties, which are basically equivalents to the path, right? the faculty of conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. So even these good things have their drawbacks at some point. When you've been able to strip away a lot of your other attachments, you find, okay, I'm really attached to my concentration. I'm really attached to my mindfulness. But they have their, they're, they're fabricated. They have these drawbacks. I mean, of course, the allure is that there's a good sense of well-being that comes from them that's not dependent on things outside. But the drawback is, okay, these two are fabricated. They require constant maintenance to keep them going. And that's when the mind really sincerely decides, yeah, I really would like something deathless. Up to that point, the mind said, well, I'd like something deathless, but I'd like to be done. But there comes a point when you realize, okay, it's either or. And you're willing to abandon there. Now, I talked earlier about how when you're working with a path, you develop it, and there comes a point where you have to abandon it. And this is how you abandon it. And you do this, again, through that process of commitment and then reflection. And you'll, you'll gain your powers of concentration, you'll gain insights. And there will be a period, for a period, you're gonna be holding on to the concentration and you're gonna be holding on to the insights. And that's when it's, it's still ordinary, sort of mundane insights. It's when you're able to turn on the insights themselves, realize, okay, even if I hold on to this insight, it's got its drawbacks. Again, it too is, is it's inconstant. And then you're faced with this dilemma, okay, if I can't stay here in this state of concentration, where am I going to go? If I go someplace else, it's also going to be fabricated. And as the mind sort of contemplates that problem, there comes an opening, which is neither staying here nor going someplace else. And the mind sort of goes there. That's when you have your opening, opening to the deathless. Given the fact that you keep reflecting, this is one of the reasons why when the Buddha introduced the practice to his son, he used the image of a mirror. So the practice is like a mirror. You keep wanting to look back at your actions. So even as you're acting on creating a state of concentration and getting all these great insights, you have to turn and look at the mind. Okay, is the mind still holding on to these things too? If you develop this habit of reflection, that's when it open, helps open up insights to go take you places you never were before. And so this is how you abandon the path. And these are the steps through desire, willingness, judgment, and exertion. You finally get to the state of state of awakening to the truth. Now, here's a paradox here, because on the one hand, we said that you awaken to the truth, but people who are awakened are said to be beyond true and false. So one way of resolving that is that I'll start out by just not holding on to anything. That doesn't take you anywhere. The other way is to realize, as I said earlier, the Buddha talks about truth in two ways. And this is derived from that original question about, does anyone know a way out of, or to put an end to this truth? You're looking for two kinds of truth. One is the actual reality of the end of suffering, and the other is words about how to get there. And so the person who has gained awakening is no longer attached to the words, but they have the reality of the end. So, so it's two different kinds of truth that we're talking about here.
So you go beyond clinging to views, not through willing it, but because you've already achieved the reality. So for here, I mean, there's no need to get involved in the social issues around truths expressed in words. Aside from the fact that if you want to teach other people, you use the, the words about right view in order to help explain it to them. But as far as your, your freedom is concerned, it's no longer dependent on words. And John Mahabha talks about how once you gain awakening, you can call it anything you want. The words have no impact on that reality. This is what we're going for. So when I say that the awakened person is no longer attached to views, what does this mean in practice? One is that some issues no longer hold any interest. Like we talked, I don't know if we talked earlier about how the question of, do I have a self, do I not have a self, do I exist, do I not exist? The Buddha recommends that you put those aside. And then he says, after you've gained awakening, you have no interest in answering them. It's not like, you know, okay, you put them aside and then you get the answer to awakening. It's the case you put them aside and then you finally get awake and realize that wasn't worth asking anyhow. It's like asking how many, how many horns does a unicorn have? So we'll put it aside for the time being, let's work on something else. <laughs> then you realize, then, I don't need to know that. So some issues no longer hold any interest. And the other is, as far as right view is concerned, think about that image of the, of the raft. Or the, or the, before the person leaves the raft, he thinks about how useful this raft has been to me. It's because of this raft that I was able to cross over. So the person has appreciation for the path, appreciation for a right view, but realize it can't be on that now. I don't need to carry it around. But it's also why they use that, those truths to teach others. And remember the Buddha himself, he set an example of this after he gained his awakening. He said, you know, people who don't have anything to honor or revere live miserably. Who should I honor or revere? He says, I can't see any person that I can honor or revere because I'm the first person in this aeon to gain awakening. But I can honor and revere the Dharma to which I awaken. So they still hold the Dharma in great respect, even though they are free from attachment to it. So that's the attitude of the enlightened person towards the truth that we've talked about today. Any questions? <laughs> so what I just talked about now, we talked about developing how to ponder about the Dharma and sort of asking yourself, okay, do I hold to any beliefs that would get in the way of my believing this is possible? Why do I hold on to it? And secondly, when you're trying to make sense out of the Dharma, how does this particular teaching fit into the Four Noble Truths? That's always going to be the context. Once you've kind of established it, okay, this makes sense. Then the Buddha says you develop the, the desire to practice, the willingness to judge your actions against the Buddhist standards. And then you exert yourself in the path, and then you judge the results, and you keep adjusting, going through exerting, committing, and then passing judgment, reflecting, and then re refining your actions. So there is a role for some kinds of clinging on the path, clinging to right view, clinging to right practices, clinging to a sense of yourself where you are capable of doing this and you're going to benefit from it. And then finally, understanding how the path targets the three types of craving. It's, it's the insight that attacks the craving for becoming and your constant powers of concentration will give you the strength to, to counteract your craving for sensuality. So that's how everything kind of fits together. And then finally, once you develop the path and it's done its work, then you abandon it. Not with a sense of disrespect, but you say, look, I, don't, I can't be 
confined by the path anymore, but you still have a lot of respect for it. I think it was a John Cha mentioned it, and John Jarasar one time said, if you really understood the Dharma, you would have tears in your eyes every time you bowed down to the Buddha. That much appreciation. Okay, any questions? First, if you were to ask my two and a half year old granddaughter, you know, how many horns does a unicorn have? She would say, with all confidence, it depends on how many unicorns are in her presence. <laughs> you got a sharp granddaughter. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how to ask this question, so I'll just start. But I'm wondering if you talking and something will come out of it. <laughs> that is, um, being with his father as he passed away. And this is a person I just really adored. And I myself didn't have a father that was in any sense of the word close to. And he was a he was a father to great amount of respect. Him, and we really, really enjoyed each other's company. In the past three years, we developed um, dementia. So we knew that this was coming. And uh, we got a call. We didn't think, we thought he had about six months left, but we got a call that he stopped eating. We need to come now. Probably won't make it before he dies. Come out. So we dropped everything and uh, just next day on a plane, and he was with us for another five days. During that period, Alistair and I spelled each other for six hours each so that one of us would be present with him, at least one of us would be present with him. And then he died. And uh, it turned out that we both were, Alistair came to spell me, we were chatting, and, and I noticed he's passing, and we were holding him, and we were able to be present with him. It was a really beautiful death. I literally felt like something had moved through me as he passed. And And since then, I have felt this um, incredible sense of gratitude. And what it's done, what the result is, I have no idea if this was him or if it was my actions with him as I was sitting with him for hours, on, you know, day after day. But I've always been a person that. And, and we encouraged this in each other that I enjoyed central things. I, I enjoyed great conversation. I enjoyed great art. He and I both loved these things. Um, I enjoyed good food. And, and I would go out of my way to use my practice in a way to you know, get good food, but to be Unattached. Wise about mm -hmm. how I did that. Since he died, it, that, that there's absolutely no interest in that kind of mm -hmm. um, 
desire to get. But what, and what feels different is every moment that I was with him was about just being with him and responding to whatever I felt was going on for him, which was very different than what I want, you know, what I'm going to get next. And there's something, something has solidified in the sense of even my, the way I'm approaching precepts, it feels different. It doesn't feel like something I have to do. It just feels like something I want to do. <laughs> and, and there's just no feeling of wiggle room there, whereas there was always wiggle room before. Um, so, so all of that happened. So there's a really solid, I can I ponder about this and I see that, yeah, there's good results. This feels healthy and blah, blah, blah. But after he died, the, that very evening, I got super ill. And I just literally, physically crashed. I didn't emotionally or mentally crashed, but my body was just like, I was out. We, the funeral didn't happen for 10 more days, and I was supposed to be a big part of helping organize this, but it was a bed the entire time. And literally throwing up and huge temperature and, and whatnot. The night before, or the morning of the funeral, I woke up and I was physically fine. And that was it, that was over. So I'm just wondering about emotionally, mentally, and the way my practice has, I think, taken a step forward. That all feels really good and positive. And I'm just, but I'm wondering about that physical part because um, it just wrecked my body. I don't know, I don't know what happened there. So should I be looking at that physical part? Is it more I need to kind of figure out about, okay, there, I mean, I can't see anything that I would have done different. Okay, I would suggest you do anything different, but it's, there's a question of how, um, how much of you, you lost. I mean, obviously there was a large, he played a large part of your sense of who you were and the enjoyment you found in life. He played a large sense of the enjoyment you found in the world. And that was taken away. And there was a strong sense of, you know, physical reaction to that. Okay, I lost a part of me. And now you're sort of reassembling the new me without him. And it takes a while to, to, to adjust that. So just, I think I think I haven't really experienced the grief. And, um, and to be okay, I'm just, this is kind of a question, is this, is this the right way to practice with it? Is, okay, just be, it's okay to be with the, be with the grief and be with this as I was with him. Mm -hmm. I can do that because I've done a lot of practice with him. Mm -hmm. So, so even just saying that, I don't have the same need for the the uh, physical crying and stuff, but I I still feel grief. Mm -hmm. And that's when you tell yourself, okay, what 
do I feel that I should do in terms of honoring his memory, what he meant to me? You just don't just, just drop him and move on. You say, okay, there, there, there's a period of time in which I have to honor his memory. And then there come a point where, okay, I'm just being self-indulgent and I've got to move on. Yes. And there's no prescribed amount of time. There's no, there's no prescribed amount of time or how long it's going to take. It's just you have your own sense of how long, much you feel the need to express the loss. And then when things begin to heal, it's okay, I've got to move on. I want to share that right now I feel really happy in the sense of a deep gratitude for this guidance. I really, really appreciate it. And I feel pretty solid that mm -hmm. I can do this. Mm -hmm. So that has really puzzled me for what's, what's the next step. And this feels really thank you very much. There's a question from online here um, on right effort in practice. On right effort, we're told we have to do the practice even when we don't want to do it. At the same time, we have to balance the level of the practice to our current energy level. However, I feel like these almost always collide. I don't want to do the practice when I feel like I have lower energy levels. And then by balancing the practice to my low energy levels, it would feel like I'm not really doing the practice when I don't want to. Can you help me understand this aspect of right effort better? Okay. Um, at the monastery, we have a book on talks about how to learn how to swim. And the reason it's in our library because it gives really good advice on how to maintain a practice, how to develop a skill. And part of it is there are days when you don't feel like swimming but you've got to swim every day. So you put in a little bit of practice time that day, but you make sure that your form is perfect. You know, and how are you doing the strokes? How are you maintaining your body posture and that kind of stuff? Even if it's a short period of time, but make, make sure that it's perfect. So for the, the amount of limited amount of energy you have, don't say, well, I'll give a half-hearted effort into developing skillful things and a half-hearted effort into kind of unskillful things. You know, so I'm going to do one really skillful thing and I'm going to abandon one really unskillful thing. So if you have a limited amount of time, just say, okay, one, one thing at a time, but do it well. In one of your talks, you described Ajahn Puan was having headaches for a couple of weeks and then months. Months. Mm -hmm. And then he was able to overcome it. Developing that was experimental. Mm -hmm. I couldn't understand it before. Okay, well, yes, you told me. And he told me partly because I, I guess he knew he was going to, I was going to become his attendant. He's talking about the time when it was so bad where he had to have several monks looking after him at night. And one night he woke up and all the other monks who were looking after him were asleep. And he's asking himself, well, who's looking after whom here? And they said, well, as long as I'm up, I might as well meditate. And then he began to realize that he had been trying to put an end to the suffering where the duty with regard to suffering was to comprehend it. He said, wait a minute, okay, let me, let me comprehend this. And it, by taking that switch in what he was doing, that was what I think led to his experience of stream entry. 
So of course I took that as a warning. And when I was because when he was sick, I would have to stay up with him all night. And there'd be times when he'd go to bed and I tried to get a little nap. And of course he would wake up. So when I went, when I made I finally made the vow, okay, if he's gonna wake up, I want to make up five minutes before he does. I want to be there. And there was something about the power of that vow. I was able to do that. And the other thing was he we his heart his heart was on stilts. And so if I was sleeping on his porch while he's sleeping in his room, if I turned over, he would complain that I was shaking the hut. <laughs> so I had to make a vow, okay, I'm gonna fall asleep, I'm not gonna move. And for some reason, that vow has stuck with me ever since. Mm-hmm. When I fall asleep, I wake up in the same position. Did you sleep on the right side? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll sleep on the right side. If I wake up, then I'll switch over to sleep on my left side. Balance things out. I know, but you can't, you can't sleep only on your right side all the time. <laughs> uh, I just had a question about the, my practice. Um, I'm in the process of building a kuti slash office, mm-hmm. and um, it kind of puts me in contact with people that I'm not, more, you know, like builders and mm-hmm. like that. that mm-hmm. Experience with, and um, so it's interesting to see like the habits that my mind goes to. I feel like maybe I have less practice with, um, and the builder that I've been working with, I think it's like around like the worldly winds. He's just very critical, and I find myself just having these habits around wanting to avoid his criticism. Um, so I, it's like I can see it coming in me, but I, I, I just haven't been able to, I can see it. I can see what I want at the moment that I want to accommodate or be pleasing to like avoid this racism or getting in trouble with them. And I just wonder if you have any reflections on like that sticky, sticky place. Well, remind yourself, you're, you're paying him to build something you want. <laughs> And he's trying to reverse the, the dynamic. And you say, look, I'm the one who's going to have to live here, so I'd like to have it this way. And say it with a smile. <laughs> There's something my brother calls the tie smile. <laughs> <laughs> he's, you know, my older brother has always been my older brother. So he comes out to the monastery and visits and he gives me business advice on how to run the monastery. <laughs> and so I smile at his advice. He says, you're giving me that Thai smile again. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, no, I want this color. <laughs> I like the way it's designed. You don't, I don't want any shortcuts. Indecision around, I don't know, things. I, I wonder, um, just I, I'm guessing with building a monastery, you had to make a lot of decisions about buildings and things like that. And it's sort of like how to engage in that process without getting overly caught in desire, you know, sort of like just that sort of edge between um, sort of having a vision for something versus clinging to the vision. Okay, if the vision is a good vision, try to stick with it. And if it actually gives you good reasons, and this is one of the cases where you might want to consult with another builder, 
So my builder X is telling me this. Is, is, he, is he telling me the truth or is he trying to get away with something? Call in a second opinion. Yes. This uh, a couple of moments ago, you said something about vows. This is just a practical question around vows. Mm -hmm. How do you approach that? How you know? How often are you bringing this up in the mind? You decide something's important enough to make a vow to begin with, and then you just sit down and. It's good to have something as a witness, you know, a Buddha image or somebody you know says, "I'm making this vow." And, and you don't you don't have to keep track of it, but I just want you to know that I'm making this vow with you so that I can sort of confirm that it's it's a real thing. But again, it's the Buddha says to make a vow one you use discernment. Is this a good thing to make a vow about? And if the, the, the goal that I'm setting for myself, what really would be a wise way of approaching that goal? And then secondly, okay, then you're true to it. You learn how to give up the things to get in the way, and you try to keep your mind peaceful as you're giving up things so that it's you know worked up about it. And if you can make the vow with those four qualities, okay. Go ahead. Yeah, there's a lot of this in the forest tradition, but the, the giants making vows. Otherwise, you just get kind of pushed around. Questions from online. We've got most of the folks. Um, one is, I try to build good intentions for people around me, but when I act or speak, it comes out as if I'm not 100% committed to this action. People around me are not liking this to the extent that they would prefer the words acts. They would not prefer the words or acts themselves. What should they do? Give an example. Type in, give an example, and then I can answer. <laughs> well, we're waiting for that, which might take a while. Uh, we have another person who's asking, I'm not sure I can quite find it, but who's asking a question about observing um, clinging or craving in breathing meditation, and specifically, can you observe it in the actual act of breathing in your act? Or are you looking at other things? To begin with, I would say look at other things. If you're going to cling, cling or clave, um, <laughs> cling or clave, the breath, that's fine for the time being. And you're concerned maybe about the other things that are going to pull you away from the concentration. Yes. Could you give me, please, some more examples of sensual desire? And the reason I'm asking that is. It seems like, besides using food and sex, pretty much covers it right there. <laughs> so, one of, so one of my things that I'm struggling with is whether I should learn this whole sport involving some gear and some learning and and uh, benefit of having a sport is it keeps you active and keeps you in touch with nature. And I could say lots and lots of things. So would that be considered sensual desire, or what? At what point would it be sensual desire? Okay. Well, there are there are sensual desires that are not antithetical to the path. I mean, having having the sport 
it might be a good thing. Keeps you healthy, gets you, gives you reason to be outside, to be, be exercising. Um, where it becomes problematic is when you start, you know, buying copies of Outside Magazine and looking at all the gear. <laughs> And you can sort of sports person porn, you know. Well, <laughs> 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 it can actually you can make a really morph into that. I'm at Thunder River Forge and there's all the sports stuff. And, and after 32 years, I I had an injury and couldn't do the, the windsurfing mm -hmm. after 32 years. And it was actually was pretty okay to let it go. But then my mind started attaching to this new sport that came along. Mm -hmm. And uh, so part of me, I've had the experience of letting go. Mm -hmm. I was kind of forced to. It turned out it wasn't that big deal after 30. I was really surprised after 32 years. Mm -hmm. My whole sense of self is the windsurfer. Mm -hmm. oh. mm -hmm. ก็ด้านบนเรื่องไปบอกว่าล้อล้อสุขสันต์สุขสันต์ what sport are we talking about? What, is, what sport are we talking about? Wing foiling. <laughs> <laughs> we have this ring
like one-on-one. -on -one. And it's been really helpful for them. But I really struggle with the becomingness of doing that, like stepping into that role of because it comes with all these complications. So I think it comes with all these complications of like him you know, teaching classes and stuff. I'm just like, I'm withdrawing what kind of led me to Buddhism and meditation was letting go of the desire, like letting go of desires because of the complications that come with those desires. Like to get those desires. So I'm like, well, taking on this role of helping people comes with all kinds of complications. I don't want complications. So I'm like, I don't know if I should take on this teaching role or not. Okay, you've got the issue of, and there will be some people who will benefit from your teaching and a lot of people who don't. Yeah, and, and that's one of the part of things you got to accept if you're going to be teaching people. Um, secondly, is you're going to find that there are some things that you have some control over how your body reacts and is it, it's cool to play with that. You will find, however, there are points where you don't have any control. And it's kind of good to explore that, where that line is. So it's not like you're avoiding the pain. It's more like, let's see how far I can control these things, how much power the mind has and where that power stops. That's actually been something I've been curious about too, like how much should I focus on exploring this, mm -hmm. that boundary? Just, and if you start teaching people things you've already mastered, then you're not going to be able to explore that boundary. What was that? If you start teaching people the things you've already mastered, you won't have the time or energy to explore that boundary. Oh, right. And it's the thing I struggle with, how much, like I said, that my own awakening and helping other people awaken too. Part of it is like for me is separating oneself from the body iron. I mean, like the body iron doesn't have to control you. Part of me is like, oh, I should teach people that, but sometimes I shouldn't figure out how far it goes first teach people. Mm -hmm. But that seems like a never ending question. Well, it, it, there will come points where you run up against issues. Okay, I mean, think about the Buddha. There's just those three knowledges that came to him in the night of his awakening. And there were people who gained that first knowledge. They stopped there and they set themselves up as teachers. Mm -hmm. Other people gained the second knowledge. They stopped there, set themselves up as teachers. The Buddha wasn't trapped by that. He said, what's the most skillful use of this knowledge? Awakening. Putting it in the suffering. We have uh, example. Well, at least further elaboration. <laughs> um, I'm judgmental about some stuff due to my upbringing, but I know that's wrong and try to be accepting. It didn't really come out as if I am accepting. And, and, and it came out a little bit forcing in which the person felt unhappy. I'm trying to change, but during the process, I'm causing unhappiness to the people around. I'm an open book. And I do try to be that way. So how do I change instantly or resist suffering <laughs> and causing unavoidable? Okay. Um, part of the problem is wanting to change instantly. <laughs> this is going to be a skill you have to learn because you're not moving from judgment, judgmentalism to acceptance. You're trying to use, move to judiciousness. In other words, being judicious in your criticism and judicious in your acceptance. And that's going to be a fine-tuning process. It's going to take a while. Because if you tell yourself, okay, I'm just going to be accepting of everything, it's not going to work. Because there's part of your mind that's wise enough to say, look, I can't accept everything. And that's going to sabotage your 
your acceptance personality. But if you tell yourself, okay, I've got to learn how to be judicious. When do I pass judgment on things? And when do I reserve judgment? And be willing to take some time in learning that skill. <laughs>